This is John McGuire, and you are listening to Pentimental on SyncBook Radio. Today, on episode number 19, we have joining us for a one-on-one conversation, burlesque performer and actress Julie Atlas Muse, as well as another one-on-one dialogue with freak actor and disability rights activist Matt Fraser. Contributing her own brand of unique background laughter this week is my own personal dream ally, Misty Greer. On this episode, we explore what it means to define oneself as an outsider, as well as the challenges involved in measuring our lives, our art, and our personal identities against the universal measuring stick of normality. Thanks again to my guests this week, and thank you for listening. Joining me today on Pentimental is Matt Fraser. Matt is an accomplished actor, writer, burlesque performer, disabled rights activist, martial artist, musician, and former co-host of the Ouch podcast. He was born with a unique condition known as thalidomide-induced hocomelia, a condition that impedes the growth of a developing child's limbs in utero. Amongst his many accomplishments, Matt might best be known to mainstream audiences for his performance as Paul the Illustrated Seal on Season 4 of American Horror Story. So with that said, Matt, thank you for being with me today. Thank you, John. It's a real pleasure. So starting out, can you embellish a bit more about your career as a performer as well as your unique physicality? Sure. I can't remember when it was early on in my life. It was about somewhere between 10 and 12. But, you know, when someone's got as flagrantly different a body as mine, it's hardwired into the DNA of every human to notice it. It's not like something you can write off at a subconscious level, like, oh, there's a guy in a wheelchair going past me. I know what guys in wheelchairs look like. I don't need to look. I, I compute that. I understand. I'm not looking. But with a guy like me, it's really rare, and you want to have a look. And, and when I say that, we all want to have a look. It's hired into everyone's DNA to look at people who are much lesser and much greater in terms of physique. So when I came to realize that that was that was it for life, like there would be nowhere I would ever go where people weren't fascinated by me and want to look at me. The idea of becoming a performer um, seemed natural to me because, you know, I'm going to be looked at. I might as well get paid for it is sort of one way to look at it. But also I might as well have agency in that exchange and find out how to manipulate the very essence of the way they look at me. And maybe I can affect the way they think about things and what have you. And then further to that, of course, is that both my parents, my dad's dead now, but my mum still is, are and were actors. And you often grow up wanting to do what your parents want to do. So a combination of all those things meant there was really only one thing I could ever be, and that was a performer. And I know I know what happened. One day I went, I was on a holiday in France, and everyone was using the diving board, and I went and used the diving board and it was you had to climb up a ladder and I guess I was negotiating it in a quite a, flag- a flagrantly physically different way but to me it was just the way I got up the ladder but when I got to the diving board I looked up and 300 people in the di- in the swimming pool were all looking at me and I thought huh you know I really don't have to do much to get all the attention here so that 
was a combination of all those things made me realize that performance and doing things performatively were going to be part of my life. That was very long-winded. Sorry, John. No, not long-winded at all. Perfect starting point. And maybe discussing a bit more about your condition, I'd like to delve into the history of thalidomide a bit, which is the prescription medication that induced your arms to be on the smaller side of the spectrum. Correct. And in 2004, you did a documentary for the BBC on the, I think it was the 50th birthday of thalidomide. And that was a truly great documentary, by the way. Thank you. And I just, if we can paraphrase a bit, I mean, why do you think the story of thalidomide beyond your own personal situation has historical or sociological significance? And what are the lessons to be learned from it? Well, I'm a political person, John, so this may be a politicized response. It was the world's first corporate pharmaceutical crime insofar as the drug company, the German drug company who created it, Kenny Grunenthal, it represented 44% of their entire annual profit for the first couple of years that they sold it. Now, evidence is coming to light and, you know, it's, it's still pending and we can't talk with a sort of it has been proved that terminology because court cases are still ongoing. But evidence has come to light that indeed they did know about the birth defects way, way before they took it off the shelves. And so there is a a window of grayness whereby it could be suggested that the people who were making the profit from it were knowingly causing harm to people in order to get the profit. That's what I believe. Um, I can't tell you I know it for fact, even though I do, because it hasn't been proved in court yet. So on the one hand, you have this wonder drug. It was the world's first non-barbiturate painkiller, which meant that you couldn't die. You couldn't OD on it. Before that, if you took too many of the painkillers and then maybe had some booze and something, you could die. This couldn't. You couldn't die. Unfortunately, back in those days, they didn't do tests on female humans, even for stuff that was, you know, in vitro. This whole notion of checking in vitro and checking pregnant women and the whole reason it says on every pill bottle, if you are pregnant, please seek the advice of your physician before taking this product, is because of thalidomide. So this all happened around the drug thalidomide. And, you know, there are two aspects to this. There's the pharmaceutical, marketing, legal, governmental, historical crime. And then there's the medical. I'll deal with the medical first. So it comes to light that what thalidomide does is inhibit the nerve buds to grow. And so the shoulder will be developing in the fetus and then the nerve buds, which will eventually lead through to the tippy ends of the thumb and the forefinger, don't properly develop. And so the limb comes out differently and the veins going towards the end of that limb also don't develop. And so the limbs don't develop either. You know, nowadays they're doing, you know, it's 20 years into tests with oncology, cancer research, and they are finding that the very uh, factor of thalidomide that inhibits the growth of veins also inhibits sometimes the gro- the access of blood and growth to some cancerous tumors. And in some cases, it actually stops it in its tracks. Um, it also clears up a lot of myelomas, which are facial and skin sores, which is well known for doing. So there's a huge amount of interest continued in thalidomide. And of course, you know, way back in the 90s and the noughties, they were trying to sort of eradicate the bits that makes the limbs funny. But, you know, wouldn't you know it, that's the very bit that is good for oncology. So there's that whole medical thing. And and I would say 
on the whole, given that they've been policed rigorously by people who've been victims of previous upsets to do with it, I think we're safe in thinking that good research is being done on oncology with thalidomide. I don't think it's as reckless and as profit motivated. Well, the, the jury would be out on the profit motivation, but it's certainly not as recklessly researched as it was in the olden days. So there's that. That's the medical. I'll just as a coder say for you Americans that the Food and Drug Administration, strange as it might seem to people nowadays, was actually an independent drug testing organization that, that did its job properly. And John F. Kennedy had just appointed Francis Kelsey, a Canadian uh, doctor, to the FDA and said, I'd like you to try this brand new wonder drug. It's just come over from Germany. They say it's 100 percent safe. And she immediately thought to herself, nothing is 100 percent safe. And she did her own tests on it. And she found evidence of peripheral neuritis, which if you take it, means that the tips of your fingers go numb for the rest of your life. And she found that was happening. So the FDA banned thalidomide in America, not because of the birth defects, but because of another problem that Francis Kelsey had found. Basically, in every country, the in our country, in England, the British Medical Association colluded with the government to, I don't know at what level, a Masonic handshake level, at a big business level, at a board level, I don't know, to withhold the information. And my birth was one of the last six months of birth. So I'm in that crucial six months where it's proved that I would not be like this if they had obeyed the law. I'm actually not angry about it. I'm not angry about my disability. I'm angry at corporate crime and I never trust a pharmaceutical company to this day. And I don't think that people who have the rights to manufacture drugs should be motivated by profit. I think all pharmaceuticals should be state run and not allowed to make a profit. But then, you know, I'm a screaming socialist. So that happened all over the world. And it's still happening to this day. You know, at the current state of play is that Kemi Gurundasal is saying, well, actually, we knew about it in the late 50s. But there's evidence come to light that they, that Goebbels knew about it and that they knew about it at the concentration camps of Germany. So it's an ongoing thing. It's looked at and some people think it's the last Nazi war crime. So thalidomide is a very, you know, statute book, lawyer school, turning of the page kind of moment in pharmaceutical history and law history. But yeah, to speak to that, I mean, corporate crime is an ongoing theme in the western world it is possibly the largest political problem the problem that we're facing here is centralization and oversight and taking responsibility all this sort of deferred responsibility to the corporation well we didn't do it the corporation did it kind of thing yeah well i mean you know i, I have no patience for that i'm left of bernie sanders and when it comes to pharmaceutical or bayer or monsanto and by the way here helping fund hillary you know, I have no patience for them. I don't buy it. I think the human condition is essentially selfish. And if you give anybody too much power, they will abuse it. It's natural. And that involves making money off the backs of the misery of, of other people. You know, it's what corporations do. It's what pharmaceutical corporations have taken to new sophisticated levels hitherto unknown by the human race. And, you know, my mom just broke her arm in two places. She's 77 and has no money. Everything was free. In Britain. Now, we don't live in a communist society. We live in a very, very capitalist society where the disparity between the rich and the poor is almost as bad as it is in America. And yet we have free health care. So I just don't understand how it came to be so hideously unfair in America. I just don't get it. I mean, it's, that's how it is. And apparently my paying $315 for me and my wife's health care from being in the Screen Actors Guild 
is an amazing deal. Well, not to somebody that's used to not paying for it at all, it isn't. But I, I take the point that it's a good deal for America. But you're right. And thalidomide really was that, that first one. It was thalidomide and hemp, maybe. But the story is ongoing with thalidomide. I and most of the people I know and talk to of the thalidomide affected generations are happy for it to be proving positive in continued studies to do with oncology. You know, a drug that caused a lot of people a lot of pain. Um, if it can cause a lot of people a lot of comfort, well, of course, that's a great thing. Goodness only knows what would have happened if Donald Rumsfeld had been able to affect and influence the FDA with thalidomide like he was able to with aspartame. And here's the rub, you know, because I'm an entertainer first more than anything else. And I know that half of my cachet is in my individual weirdness. If there were 400 other guys running around America who looked like me, no one would think I was interesting. So, <laughs> you know, sorry, that was a sick and personal levity take on an otherwise serious situation. No, but one of the most interesting things I took from your documentary on the subject was the ambivalence that you came out of it with. You know, many documentaries, they're just trying to make a black and white case for something. And in this sense, I agree that, yes, the story is dark and thalidomide and other medications and other choices that we're making in a corporate controlled state apparatus. We have to be more conscious of what's going on. At the same time, you recognize that, oh, you know, this is medicine that is actually, mm, it's curing these people's pain that would make their lives unbearable. And within that space that the medication creates, they're able to pursue whatever, something resembling a life that's not crippled by pain. Or in this case, maybe it has some upside for cancer research, so there can be something good in it. But at the same time, we can't lose sight of the original problem, the original crimes. And really, do we want to keep repeating these mistakes? We could always say, well, there's some good that came out of that, but should we have made that decision to even yeah. begin with, you know? Yeah, like in Brazil, they use it. So there are 30,000 new cases of leprosy every year in Brazil. About a third to a quarter of the people who take the regular medication have what they call reaction type 2, which is an unfortunate, painful blistering of the mouth and uh, skin. And thalidomide clears that up. Bang. I watched it. I watched a woman take it, and an hour later she felt better when I was in Brazil. Now, of course, you know, People who get leprosy are not well-read generally and are not terribly well-educated on the whole. So a lot of illiterate people who don't read the warning, do not take this if you are pregnant, will take a pain-relieving medicine that their neighbor happens to have when they complain about being in pain. They have about one or two to three babies every year as a result of inadvertent taking of thalidomide to combat this. So what they do is there's a state pension, a disability pension, and you can have it it's a single figure and you have it one to, to up to seven times, depending on the severity of your condition. If you're born into a thalidomide body, a thalidomide affected body, they automatically give you the seven times amount state pension for life as a kind of payoff, I suppose. Now, that can seem a little cynical, but if you're relieving hundreds of thousands of people from the pain of reaction type two to do with leprosy, then is the price worth paying of a couple of deformed babies that you know you're creating a year worth it? That is a philosophical question that none of us are able to answer. But I know what I think. And it sounds strange coming from me, maybe, but I would say that it's probably a price worth paying. Yeah. And one person that you met in Brazil that was interesting to me was the story of Jacqueline. And oh, yeah. 
the exploitation that goes on still with yeah. families using their child's pension for their own purposes. So maybe can you explore that a little bit and that social situation? Sure. Well, I mean, Jacqueline was deaf and her family had not taught her sign language or, and they had their own rudimentary family invented sign language, which just basically get, kept her housed, clothed and fed, really not much more. The woman was keenly intelligent and locked into this ignorance that hadn't been liberated by education through any help with her family, who were also illiterate, poor as fuck, and also benefiting from slightly better standard of living. Like, you can always spot the thalidomide victim in a favela because they've got the nicest house. And the alcoholic father just pissing the money away. You know, you couldn't really find a more unfair and unjust situation in one family. They personify all the things that can go wrong. And these things can go wrong. You know, I had friends whose parents did exploit the money. Most people, once they got agency and they were, you know, into their 20s and owning their own shit, were able to eventually get rid of the, the hangers-on and the, the family members that were exploiting them for financial gain. Because after all, you know, there's 30,000 pounds going and the guy's got no legs or arms. He needs that money for his adapted van, you know, not for a new set of gold clubs for the dad or what have you. But the instances that I know of this happening are wouldn't number more than like 5% total, probably. But when it does happen, it's very upsetting. And I really wanted to have that guy killed, you know. But what can you do, you know? And then, you know, the, the other thing is I was, I was a posh white guy from England with all the benefits of that upbringing pontificating about a situation of amazingly poor people in Brazil, who I can't really comment on. It's not for me as a white Westerner rich comparatively to say you should or shouldn't do that. However, I think we could all say he should not have spent the money on a damn swimming pool that he never used and should have been spending it on his daughter for whom the money was provided in the first place, you know. So your history with thalidomide has propelled you into life where you're involved with the disabled rights community and the disabled arts community and yeah. maybe you can just give us an idea of what that is what you do within it and what you think it adds to the conversation well i mean i count myself as a disability artist meaning that disability arts is art that talks about the experience of disability in one way or another you don't have to be disabled to be a disability artist but it helps but you don't have to be you have to be disabled to say hey i know what being disabled is like as you would black or gay or woman, you know, or trans. So when you're a politicized artist, your art reflects your politics and your show social experience more often than not in a way that tries to influence the absorbers of your art to come upon the same understanding of the world that you have and you're trying to assert through your art. And that's true to form what I've been doing all my life. And we start off those of us that are super motivated by politics as much as the art form angrily stabbing in the dark with amateurish work that makes a point but isn't very well formed, perhaps, until you end up, in my example, with a show like Beauty and the Beast, which was the culmination of all that I've been trying to do on stages throughout Britain and America in the last 20 years, finally coming across a piece. You know, what I want is to affect the most radical ideas of change to do with disability, to restructure people's brains so they think of us just as equal. But of course, I mean, society spends its entire time othering us on every level. So it's no surprise that people are awkward and embarrassed when they come to deal with disability. And my work has been to try and eradicate that and try and recalibrate people so they understand what our needs are and what their needs are 
collectively our needs and desires because they're all the same. We all want to live in a world where we love each other and we feel loved. It's as simple as that. And anybody that tries to tell you different is an agent of oppression. There we are. I'm particularly militant and political today. Sorry, I don't know why. I just am. <laughs> so my art started off crudely stabbing at politics through art and hopefully has come to a more mature, sophisticated point where I'm able to marry the two in a pleasing work of fiction that people can absorb without feeling threatened or feeling that I'm pointing the finger at them or telling them that stuff is their fault, because that doesn't help anybody. I mean, it's an ongoing thing. I haven't got it 100% right yet. And I mean, I've, we, me and my wife, we've got a company, we work together. So we feel that we've got it pretty much right on stage. But as a, as a screen operative, I mean, as an actor, I feel I got Paul right in that genre of American Horror Story. But ideally, I'd like to be take a part in either writing or acting or both in a piece of work that we can all recognize as the real world that involves us, those of us that watch it, thinking, yes, I could be that person, which involves disabled people as well. And that's, I think, what I'm probably going to be making most of my efforts towards over the next 10 years in stage and screen and writing, you know. So I have heard you say, and what you're communicating here is, in a sense, we're attempting to challenge whatever normality is, or yes. at least the darker sides of normality. Well, the trouble with normality, sorry to interrupt, John, is that it's dictated by the people whose image the world was made in, and that's middle-class white heterosexual men who are non-disabled. And the further away you get from that image, the harder it is to negotiate life at all, because it's been set up for those people. And so their idea of normality isn't most of ours, yet we've accepted it hook, line and sinker as normality. So it's a difficult one to break free of, but break free of it we must if we are to achieve a sense of peace with ourselves, because very few of us are, you know, the Koch brothers. Well, where do you, I don't know, you know, I'm always trying to find a compromise between, because we brought up the situation in America with like healthcare, for example. Yeah. People are going without in all sorts of ways. So there's the economic political side of things, but then also there's the identity politics side of things. It's also very important. And often these communities don't seem to come together as a united front because the economic people are either belittling the identity people or the identity people are just disregarding the economics of the situation and so on. And I guess, you know, this is a complex question. There's no direct answer, but I mean, how do you, how do you marry those two sides in your life? And I mean, is there ever a point where you come into conflict with people because it's just they're either too polarized or too focused on one thing or the other. Well, yes, no, I hear you. And there is, there's no clean answer to that, is there? But, I mean, for example, I spent the last year marching a fair bit, going to events, you know, Orlando Massacre, gay marriage, women's right to abortion. I can't believe you guys are still arguing about that. We sorted that out in the fucking 80s. I know. It's embarrassing. Revolting. So all that's going on, and identity politics is really, really rearing its head again like a horse. Political correctness, that which we had in the 90s, is coming back with a vengeance, it really is. And, you know, I think that's no bad thing. What happens is it all gets really crappy, people stop behaving, and then militant people need to come along and slap everyone around and rem remind everybody what decency is. Then they become the uber lord, and then the wrong people get in charge of their organizations and tell us all how to put one foot in front of another at which point we all go oh fuck off will you and then the whole thing goes round again and i've watched it because i'm 54 i've watched it go around two and a half times in my life so i see it coming again 
I think it's going to be very interesting how it impacts in the next five years. But I think ultimately we need to, I mean, so Taylor Mack is a queer artist who's been doing a rebranding of American history for 200 years through song while celebrating all the outsiders and the queers and all the people that were ignored the first time around. And then they all did a, a comedy Tiny Tim sketch and posted a backstage picture of them all having fun being Tiny Tim. And I said, at, at what point, guys, is this not cultural appropriation that you've been going on about for the last year? Don't blackface. It's never OK to wear a headdress, yada, yada, yada. All of which I agree with. I am an ally to people fighting for their space. But I had to point out with them that there was a lot of hypocrisy if they thought that it was super fun to do Tiny Tim, were any of them disabled or crippled? Had they asked anybody like that? No, and no was the answers. So interestingly, they had a conversation as a company, decided that they'd fucked up, cut the number from the, from the piece, and then talked about it in the show, talked about how they'd failed to see what they were doing, which I found was very interesting. And I think that kind of self-policing, as long as we don't get too uptight about the you know polit- political correctness of it all, I think being allies to each other's causes is a very healthy thing. And I know that when we, when I was in the direct action network of the 90s, a disabled group in London campaigning for accessible public transport, we did not tolerate any homophobia or sexism or racism in any of the rhetoric from any of our members. And I think that's a good thing. I think we have to be together as a community. What, of course, the right wing and the mainstream and the uber lords are so good at is casting divisions between us. It's hard to know what's the sensible thing and what's the not sensible thing in this world where we quite rightly should be allying ourselves with each other to create an alternative movement that's all encompassing and freedom for everybody. Because most people don't actually agree with freedom for everybody. I believe in freedom of speech. So I think people should be able to stand up and be really racist and sexist and then take what's coming. I don't think that they should be stopped from saying it. Young people just don't agree with me. They walk out of universities because they misunderstand something a professor says because they think it's racist or they stop a white person with dreadlocks on the stairs in their college. All of this is off Facebook that I've read without perhaps knowing that the first historical people with dreadlocks were Indian. So we have to watch out. We have to take care that we don't police, but that the joy of policing doesn't become something in itself. But we must all be allies to each other. And I continue to be so. You know, I'm a bit kinky and I'm 54 and white and, and cis and straight. So I'm very aware living in the world of burlesque with my wife, as I do in New York, that it's I'm a second away from being the enemy. The guy that has the sex fantasy about the young girl is taking her clothes off for the male gaze, blah, 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 blah. You know, I think I'm on top of it all. But, you know, I own my shit. I know when I'm when I'm thinking stuff I shouldn't be thinking. But I think that, too, has to be allowed. It just shouldn't be celebrated or spoken of in public. Now, that's coming out wrong because it makes it sound like secretly I'm a perv, but publicly I'm not. Um, and I'm not saying that at all, John. I'm saying we must all be allies to each other. It's impossible to be everybody's allies. Acknowledging that is OK and trying one's best is the answer. There we go. Yes, I completely agree. And just to put my political hat on, I do see that yeah. for a long time since Jesus, since America was formed, there has been divide and conquer tactics to yeah. make the people, the public, to turn them against each other. And yep. these sort of tactics to make people compartmentalize their identity and see enemies where there's not really any. And 
Also, the mainstream media, which is incredibly conservative and run by the right wing, basically, there's always the hoopla of, oh, the liberal media that doesn't really exist and has never really existed. It's always been alternative stuff like what I'm doing or what anyone yeah. else does. Yeah. That's alternative left media, really. Yes, correct. And so the truth is, like, all the, a lot of the stories about identity politics and so on, in my view, are they cherry pick the, some of the worst kinds. Oh, it's like those stories. Oh, this person got ridiculously offended over this very small thing that this person said when we're not really focusing on hey how are these outsiders helping to build communities how are these outsiders contributing in meaningful ways that way outnumber and way outweigh all these divisive stories that really are i think small and not significant compared to what we're doing to build the future together what are we doing to build a happier healthier open freer future to not hate yourself to be a prisoner in your own body is the worst thing and to make yeah. anyone think that there's something wrong with an, an identity as long as you're a, still a caring person and you're contributing to your community and helping to build a future where people can thrive and be themselves there's nothing wrong with it and so the, yeah. this, the all these questions and arguments over it i find very sad i agree with you you know a lot of people people will say crippled or handicapped or some fucking word that belongs 20 years ago you know and actually what they're saying is a nice thing. And somebody gets really offended by the word. I don't get offended by the word. I get offended by the intent. I can feel if someone's on the right side of stuff or not, and yeah. if they mean well or not. And if they get the wrong word, you know, maybe have a say, you know, ooh, little people might not like the word midget. A lot of them responded badly because that's all they got called at school. Generally, the little people of America like to be called little people or person of restricted growth. But you do whatever you will. And little moments like that are okay. But slamming someone, as you say, for getting the little thing wrong, when they were trying to do the good big thing, it does not help. And yet the powers that be, and I have to say, I think Facebook is a fascinating tool, starts off as a, a super highway of information and social interaction. And it's become David Icke and a lot of other conspiracy theorists say that the idea of the uber elite is to get the population to police themselves. Well, I, I, I sometimes when I look at Facebook, I think that's what's happening, you know, seems to me. You are not allowed to criticize Hillary at the moment. You're not. And if you do, it means that you support Trump. Well, of course, I don't support Trump. He's exactly the kind of divisive thing you were just talking about. He's really good at setting people against each other. But let's not pretend that Hillary is Mahatma Gandhi here. She is perhaps the most liberal alternative of a continuation of the status quo, which is a slightly right of center, new Roman Empire intent on creating third world war and will go into Syria next year. You know, let's not pretend that's not the case. But of course, she's a better idea than Donald Trump. I don't comment politically anymore on Facebook. If I do, I keep to disability, you know, because I know my stuff there. And you know what? I can't even vote. So it really doesn't matter what I think. <laughs> well, and you know, I mean, I consider myself a seriously political person, but at the same time, I feel like a lot of this political federal stuff, especially in America, is it's theater. And Hillary is a moderate Republican pretending to be a liberal, and she's a friend of the corporations and always has been. She's not going to yeah. give the middle. There is no middle class anymore. She's not going to give the middle class anything anyway. She's not going to build the economy from the ground up. All of the things that we would criticize Trump for economically she would do the same things and continue uh -huh. the same program. Only she would be less offensive to our palate in terms of, you know, she treats people with more respect and so on, which we need as a, as a symbol 
uh, and a head of state. We need that. So she's, of course, she's better, but of course, yeah. she's horrible as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm with you on that. I, I, I would have loved to have seen Bernie make it. Naively, I thought for a couple of months back there that that might happen. But then you realize, wait a minute, dude. Of course, that's never going to happen. Yeah. I mean, I really wanted to be a fly on the wall. When he came in and had a conversation with Obama, when he left, he was endorsing Hillary. What the hell was that conversation? You know, it was like, Bernie, nice try. But dude, come on. <laughs> you know, it's just that in England, Jeremy Corbyn won the leadership of the Labour Party, the party in shadow. And he's left way left of, of Bernie Sanders. He wants to take Tony Blair to the court for war crimes in Iraq. You know, mm. He's serious. But, you know, America is a much more efficient corporation on behalf of the Rothschilds and, you know, blah, 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 the Rockefellers and what have you of this world. And all we can really hope for is a slightly better liberal gloss over that. I can't help but wondering what's going to happen over the next 20 years. Because 20 years ago, I guess when Bill Clinton was in power and stopping NAFTA and Glass-Steagall and all that. I mean, if we have another 20 years of that, who knows where it's going to be? How military the police are going to look in 20 years' time? Drones coming to a knock on your door and then shoot you on sight? I don't know. Probably, though, right? But I just don't want to be one of those people that lives under a tree. And I mean that literally, not figuratively. In order to opt out of society, you literally have to opt out of, of modern living. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to live in mud like a crusty. I did that in some of the early 90s. I can't do it anymore. So yeah, sometimes I feel a bit hopeless. And when I do, I go back to my disability politics, because that's something that, you know, people talk about diversity, but we don't even get on that conversation. So there's a lot of work to do with disability. And um, I would like to see disabled people given, I want disabled kids to have a better start in life, to have a better set of aspirations, to realistically think they can get certain places. Whereas my generation of disabled kids didn't think that. And so I have a fairly clear job, John. My job is not to right the wrongs of the world and make the Hillary's go away and the Bernie's come. I'll always vote for that if I'm asked. But my job is to get people to recalibrate their mind around disability and get us to see us as another diverse group of normal people who have an equal stake in society and should be lived with and amongst just like everybody else. Yeah, I think... An avenue for people that have sort of abandoned politics as a meaningful way for changing things. It really has to come from, for me, I'm just trying to cultivate what does a culture of resistance mean? What does building new culture mean? What yeah. does it meaning, what does grassroots activism and grassroots community and grassroots community building mean through art, through dialogue, through all sorts of whatever, through being on the ground? I'm not much of a protester myself. I'm pretty, uh, pretty much a shut-in. But this is my form of protest um, and discussing these things and the way I live my life. You know, I'm a minimalist. I don't run anything on credit anymore. I try to cut all that shit out of my life. And in that sense, yes, I'll never escape the system. And I wouldn't advise everyone to follow what I do. But I think we all have to find ways of resisting and creating culture in the way we would want to see it made in the future. And all we can do is be examples to other humans and to hopefully set off some sort of psycho-emotional chain reaction in the population. That's yeah. that's all we can do. And John, it's interesting that because you, you framed the next thing I want to say, which is as artists and to artists who feel like you and me, but who need to make art. I would say this. And, and boy, am I talking about my younger self here. So I'm not preaching to everybody else. I'm, t I'm literally describing my former self 
and knowing that I'm talking to people who are feeling this. When you care so much about shit, you really want your piece of art to be about that thing. And you want people to go, yeah, I get it. And now I think like you. And here's the secret, artist friends. You shouldn't really make the thing about that thing. So if I'm writing a play and I want it to be about the abolition of slavery, I must not have a character that goes on about the abolition of slavery. What I must have is the most woefully horrible example of slavery just illustrated. The audience will then do the work of going, Jesus, fuck, we have to abolish this. Right. And as an artist, my job as a disability artist is to find a narrative structure that allows uh, a showing of the, of the awfulness of the world in terms of disability in some ways without having a polemic, a charmless polemic straight to audience going, and you should think like this and you should think like that, because that just does not work, my committed friends. It doesn't work. It works when you're just a person saying something like at a TED talk. But if you're a dramatist and you're creating and dramatic narrative, please don't be, let it be a polemic. Have a character that has polemics. Sure. But you know, if you refuse to let the opposite argument breathe in your polemic, all people will want to do is listen to the opposite argument. And I know this. I've made that mistake. My friends have made that mistake and are making it. And probably I'll make it again in the future, but we try not to. And I'm saying this because I'm telling myself to do this now, because I've just started on my new play subject, which is that I learned about the ugly laws between the 1860s and the 1890s in America, which was a way of getting disabled beggars off the streets via the levels of ugliness that they portrayed. And it was the beginning of the institutionalization and the Victorian idea of caring for disabled people, taking their agency and independence away from them. That's how I'm looking at it anyway. Now, I know that my piece of work cannot have a character that goes, this is taking away our independence and blah, blah, blah. You know, I can't have that because people didn't fucking talk in those in that way those days. You know, I'm currently researching it, but I'm aware that what I need to do and what I've just done for the last 10 minutes is tell myself how to do it again. But hopefully that other people listen to because, you know, artists, we've really got to start getting it right because the enemy, there are a lot of Donald Trump supporters who would watch Beauty and the Beast and become more liberal because of it. But if they were told what the ending of Beauty and the Beast is, us two naked fucking on stage, simulated, they would never come. In fact, they'd ask for it to be banned just from the very notion of it. So we have to be careful with our art because we are basically trying not to preach to the converted, but we're trying to convert the enemy, aren't we? Yeah, the question is, and then how, how do we go about doing it? And uh, one of my favorite philosophers is a fellow named Robert Anton Wilson, and he framed it as, as artists, you can either be a seducer or you can embody the rape culture <laughs> in, a, in a very wow. blunt way. And it's what side are you on? How do you pull people into your reality tunnel and at least make them sense what you sense and what you see without forcing it on someone? Because so many arguments and so many points of view are just being forced into your worldview, onto you take it or leave it, George W. Bush, you're with us or against us, this sort of fucking black and white bullshit. Yeah, I mean, and it, but everybody does it. A friend of mine who shall remain nameless, because I love her so much, just produced a piece on assisted suicide, which she's very against. But it wasn't a persuasive argument. And she told us all what to think and what was right and what was wrong. And it was very black and white. Now, I might agree with her, but the very fact that she said that, there's a little bit of you that bucks against that. You know, so we have to be very careful how we persuade people to our opinion. And 
giving them all the information is vital, I think. You know, you mustn't treat people as you complain that you've been treated, you know. Don't treat me like sheep or it's not so black and white. Well, don't be black and white to your audience then either, you know. Yeah, and this is something we can all learn to help seduce each other into coming together into whatever, <laughs> an orgy, <laughs> social orgy. In a holy Roman orgy, <laughs> I'm quoting from the hippie musical Hair. Masturbation, fellatio, cunnilingus, pederasty. So basically, everything should be allowed as long as everyone's <laughs> consensual and it doesn't hurt people. <laughs> we should all be doing it. Well, remarkably political uh, conversation we're having, John. What a pleasure. Indeed. And it's rare I get to have these because so often most of my work, I don't try to mix the politics and the art too much because, again, there's always that danger of am I just in a polemic state and am I just trying to tell people what to think? And so I, it's a hard thing to talk about because people's egos are uh, deeply entrenched in these questions and they're not willing to let go of old narratives. Yeah, like we're not going to get rid of the rid of the word retarded until we see a really mature piece of work with a Down syndrome actor who it displays the human condition in crisis, which is what it takes for an audience to connect with a human being and stop caring about what they are and start caring about who they are and what they want. And then the audience want them to have that thing. And then they live through the aspirations of the character. That's good writing, something that is never given to disabled characters, let alone actors, let alone congenitally, you know, uh, let alone Downs actors. But if that were the case, and then you have this guy, John, say, or Mary, and we all know John and Mary and we love John or Mary and we want them to get that girlfriend. And it was horrible when the guy ripped them off and we really feel for them. And then someone calls them retarded and they cry and we have to sit there and watch their pain. Then we're going to stop using the word. We are never, ever going to stop using it by, hey, hey, ho, ho, the word retarded got to go. You know, fuck that. No one's going to listen to that. And so it, it, it's a tough task to get people to want to change. But you have to do it subtly and carefully, and you have to use emotion and human connectivity and that kind of thing. And not many writers get that correct. No, and honestly, like you talked about, we're taught to be self-policing, but we're also taught to be self-disassociated and deny things in ourselves, and, this, and subtlety is not something that is... Subtlety is between the lines. It's between the A and B answer. It's not the way we're taught to be. No. It's not. And the story in the news today, 16-year-old schoolboy subjected to 30 hours of sexual oppression by his really hot teacher and her girlfriend. Now, I am old school, right? I'm like, dude, that's a fucking dream come true for most schoolboys. But other people are reading it and going, no, it's abuse. And it feeds into the masculine culture of that is what. It, and I'm like, yeah, you've banged the nail in my in my head. That's who I am. I was brought up like that and I suffer from that. And I read it immediately as, oh, my God, I would have loved to have been that schoolboy. But I also readily accept that I'm imprisoned by my sexual response to some things. Mm -hmm. And I, I long to be released of it. But I was brought up that way, John, and it's really hard to get rid of. It's really, really hard to get rid of. And yeah, it's just like, well, do I have to get rid of it? Or am I, is it just me acknowledging it and bringing it up and me being aware of it and being able to get out of my own way as long as I can get out of my own way and not get in other people's way because of it I'm willing to accept these things about myself and it's like hey I'm an artifact this way I'm outdated but overall I'm pretty good you know <laughs> overall you pretty much nailed how I feel about myself <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know I, I host a lot of burlesque 
was a huge, like, new, angry, rip-roaring wave of feminism shooting through the younger elements of Burlesque. Quite right, too. It's overdue, I think. But I'm like, should I actually even host now? I'm a straight white male. Yes, I'm the flawed male, the disabled male, who can play the cliches of that two-dimensional comedy in cabaret form. The guy that's never going to get the girl because he's disabled. And so you're like, don't you wish you could have her to the audience members? And they're like, yeah, you like me are never going to get them. We lust after them on their pedestal. And that's as may be. But frankly, it's a little tired as an argument. And really, there should be female hosts if this is a female medium. And I'm now thinking, you know, should I be doing all these burlesque gigs? Is it right? I've certainly changed my rhetoric. I mean, way long gone are the days of going, huh? Would you? You know, wouldn't you? After after somebody has been particularly sexual on stage, you don't go words to the effect of, I bet you'd like to have sex with her, wouldn't you? Because, you know, that's not appropriate enough. But it's difficult to know what is appropriate because it's a burlesque show and they just show their titties and their ass or their dick and their balls, if it's a guy, to titillate the audience members into fantasizing about having sex with them for money through art. And that in itself is a layered political <laughs> conundrum that I'm constantly, constantly, what's the word, not assessing, considering my place in that and whether it's shifting. And it is. It is. All right. Let's go into burlesque a little bit. And amongst your many accomplishments, you are a burlesque performer, too. Mostly a host these days. Mostly yeah. a host. But you have taken off your clothes in front oh, of people. Oh, many, many times. And, and I used to take off my clothes when I'm hosting as well. Because I think it's only fair, you know. Yeah, and so I've heard you talk about you having body image issues for much of your life, and maybe you didn't even overcome them until your 30s. So, I mean, what what has the trajectory of that been for you, and what is your advice for other people, especially men? Because I am one of those men. I I have all kinds of body issues. I used to be an overweight teen, and I've never gotten over that. And I don't think that that's something that's particularly talked about. Body image generally is talked about, but largely, again, that's a female-driven conversation. But there's also men with either disabilities or just weight issues yeah. or something, you know, mm. that this is a real thing and a real trauma that people live with. And so what is your story in regards to that? Well, for my own story, I found it very liberating to be celebrated as my freakish self within the burlesque community. Burlesque and sideshow kind of run in parallel here in New York as part of American culture. So Matt, the seal boy, flapping his flippers and getting everybody to bark like a seal for applause is a sort of celebrational throwing off of the chains of worrying about all that. And, you know, everybody's so worried about their politically correct response to my disability and me going, oh, please, don't even bother about that. If something wrong, I'll tell you. Otherwise, just enjoy yourself. Have a good look. You've paid your money, you know. That's very celebrated and, and in tune with the neo-feminism that early burlesque was. You know, when it started, it was for women whose bodies weren't size cosmopolitan ideal, wasn't showing their vagina for the male gaze, was women celebrating women for women and their well-behaved male friends, gay friends included, of course. And so that's what I came into and was able to slip into and add my disability to, to everyone's continued enjoyment and celebration. And that's wonderful. So I actually found the stage of burlesque with its most worryingly stripping down of the reality. So you're literally stripping down to what you actually are and then celebrating it. Really liberating. But then I'm very confrontational. I think sexual confidence on stage as a disabled person is a hugely political act. 
So I was able to sate my politics, my ego, my showbiz, my freakery, and all of this, all in one kind of bam. This is burlesque. This is me in burlesque in what was basically 2007 to about 2012. In the last four years, it's changed quite a bit, as I said. And I'm also doing more plays and, and more writing and slightly less cabaret and more sort of theatre. But burlesque has been a wonderful vehicle for my liberation and celebration of my body in bearing witness to the company of others who feel the same and persuading them to feel the same through using the joyous lack of what was the lack of political correctness around my body in a burlesque medium, pastiching all the sexual cliches, making them gags, if you will, to do with my disability, showing that I'm cool about my body and saying it's sexy, and that immediately makes it sexy to a, a huge group of people. And I think the same could be said for anybody. If they go on stage and show out really sexily and show that they're confident and sexy about themselves, they will be found to be sexy. It doesn't really matter what their shape or condition is. If they get the recipe right, the audience will respond accordingly, I think. So that's what Burlesque has given me and countless people with body issues. You know, I mean, it's kind of a cliche to say that Burlesque is body therapy. It is a lot of the time. At the more professional end, one doesn't want to see that. But at the beginning level, one often sees a drunk group of friends celebrating their friend who's only the second time on stage in what is an attempt to recalibrate their sexuality in the eyes of the public. And that's a beautiful thing. Boylesque is allowing that as well, and that's wonderful. You know, there's a constant battle to keep the larger people involved because at the end of the day, the traditionally beautiful are going to make the venue owners the most money for the people who do burlesque week in, week out. But that's not really why Neo Burlesque was set up, and certainly half the clubs and events in New York continue to espouse this celebration of the outsider body ideal and saying, you know, I'm fat and I'm sexy or I'm, I'm this, that and the other and I'm sexy and you better know it. And most of the time the audience do. Going a little further with your involvement in the burlesque world, you're married to one of the elite performers in this world, Julie Atlas Muse. Uh -huh. I, I was, I've had the privilege of talking to Julie and she's wonderful and I loved getting acquainted with her artwork. It's hilarious. It says all kinds of things. It's beautiful. It, it's a beautiful menagerie of... Of contradictions. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Paradox is where it opens up room for questioning, and it's important. And so both of you play with those ideas beautifully. But anyway, maybe you just want to talk a bit about your relationship with Julie and your collaboration with each other. Yeah. Well, when we first said, let's do something together, because we were really hot for each other, but right at that point, we couldn't really do anything about it. We were in relationships with other people. So we made a piece of art and she said Beauty and the Beast and immediately it was like a penny dropped. So it was like a shoe dropped, I think you say in this country. Of course, why the hell haven't I been thinking about that kind of thing? She has liberated a lot of ideas and helped me see this sort of more, less uptight political correct aspect of the, of the disability politics. Uh, further to that, both of us with previous partners were with somebody who would go to our artistic idea. Well, that's great, but maybe you should stop there. When we met each other, that bit was removed and we just had, yeah, and maybe you should do more. So we found ourselves completely naked most of the time on stage pretty soon after we met each other, which we're quite well known for uh, amongst our friends. But her work is, I would hasten to say, her early rope escape act to You Don't Own Me is probably one of the first classic, iconic feminist burlesque striptease routines. And she comes up with all of them. But 
if you were to say you're a feminist burlesque, she'd retort, no, I'm not, just because she doesn't like being told what she is. She's brought up in Detroit, punk rock, Iggy Pop, eight miles shit, and uh, she won't be labelled by anybody. She won't have it, which I love her for, and I'm, I'm occasionally frustrated by, like she is with me. But I love, I absolutely love her politics and her agent provocateur nature. So, right, here's an illustration of that. Right at the moment in New York burlesque, yes, all women and no to rape culture and all of that stuff is very swirling around and people are doing work about it and it's angry and clumsy in the way that we talked about earlier often. So Julie's piece is to create a puppet, Boo Khaki. So a khaki colored puppet called Boo that is also the word Bukaki. And it's a giant seven foot tall penis with tap dancing testicles that she's inside and crouches down in. She's the act over five minutes. She just gets up and then puts her arms above her body. So she's a fully now erect penis on stage. It's almost seven foot tall. She's got a firing mechanism for those joke cans of worms that you get that when they shoot out of the can and she's got them firing out of the urethra of the penis as it comes. And that's all to Nirvana's rape me. And it's not easy to watch, John. I'll tell you. <laughs> but in the way you just said, being an provocateur, create contradictions that provokes a conversation. That is a, is a case in point, I think, because, uh, it's a heavy piece of work to watch. You put another track to it and it's, if you put hot diggity, duck diggity, what you do to me, a bit of vaudevillian, hot satire, then that's one thing. But if you do it to fucking Nirvana's rape me, it's really, really different. And that's Julie. That's Julie all over, you know. I love her. Love her. Love her work. Okay, so in wrapping up, can you give the audience an idea of where they can see you perform in the near future and what other projects we should be on the lookout for? Sure. Well, December 1st to 11th at the Chicago Museum of Contemporary Arts, we're going to be doing Beauty and the Beast for a two-week run. Hopefully, we're hoping for more uh, bookings on that show, but it's, it's proving difficult. So if you're in the area, do come along. It may be one of your rare chances to see the show. I have a band uh, that one of us is the production company that me and Julie own. And we run all of our art through it. And um, the band video. So I'm in a band called The Spasms, S-P-A-Z-M-S. Check us out on Facebook and SoundCloud. We have a new single, Radioactive Japanese Jellyfish, the video for which will be released next week or this week later. Julie directed it. I wrote and produced it, featuring our band, The Spasms. So very proud of that. Next, in terms of Larger Pieces of Art is a play about the ugly laws uh, that I'm going to be writing. But I shouldn't imagine that's going to see the light of day for probably about a year. I'm waiting on a new TV show uh, filming dates. I'm going to be in a new comedy that's being filmed for American television. And finally, I've got a production that I want to get going in Britain of a very famous horror film that I want to bring to the stage. And Julie would be the choreographer on that job because that's primarily one of her major skills is choreography. I um, in terms of what we're doing, like just me and her together, we're working on a, a couple of new acts like cabaret stuff. She's working on a new hosting persona called Juicy Hardcore, who's an Eastern European ex-animal porn star from the 90s. Interesting to see how that comedy character is going to go down in the current climate. But don't worry, Peter fans out there, P-E-T-A, 
I'm an animal rights activist and I have been all my life. So we'll make sick jokes, but they'll land properly, hopefully. Now, that's our plans. And then we also keep try to keep a third of our time free for other people's plans that may involve us. She's constantly franchising acts that are going into these sexy circus shows called Absinthe and La Soiree that tour all over the world. And I'm often being asked to speak um, at universities and stuff about freakery and sideshows and disability and performance and what have you. And we just continue that, really. There's no one next thing that I can particularly ask listeners to go to, except probably the Spasms new video which is a piece of work, artwork, masquerading as a pop video, where we've tried to both pay homage and simultaneously subvert the cliches of the pop video genre. Yeah, that's, that's about it, where we are right now. Come January, I think there'll be a lot more going on, because I'm waiting on a couple of bits and bobs of, of news to do with funding and what have you, but right now those are the plans. So with that, Matt, thank you so much for being with me today. John, it's been a real pleasure to talk some socio-political take on the modern world. It's very rare that I get the opportunity to do so, especially in America, sadly. So it's especially uh, refreshing to do so with you. So thank you very much, John. Thank you for listening to this broadcast from SyncBook Radio. If you enjoyed this episode, there's so much more content waiting for you at thesyncbook.com. Our newest episodes are always free and members get access to our full archive of over 600 hours. You'll find all of this, as well as our books and videos, at thesyncbook.com.